when, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that it's all about to take place? Watch out that no one deceives you, said Jesus. Yes, lots of people will come using my name, saying, I'm the one, and the time has come. Don't go following them. When you hear about wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. These things have to happen first, but the end won't come at once. One nation will rise against another, he went on, and one kingdom against another. There will be huge earthquakes, famines and plagues in various places, terrifying omens and great signs from heaven. But before all this happens, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons. They will drag you before kings and governors because of me, because of my name. That will be, become an opportunity for you to tell your story. So settle it in your heart, not to work out beforehand what tale to tell. I'll give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or contradict. You'll be betrayed by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will kill some of you. You'll be hated by everyone because of my name, but no hair of your head will be lost. The way to keep your lives is to be patient. Um, we'll pause there and we'll come back to the rest of it. Um, so what's this passage all about? Um, I kind of, it seems to me like it's a pretty urgent question. It's been said uh, that you can tell a lot about someone's personality from what they're like. Um, in the same vein, you can, uh, when you're wondering about what the subject of this passage is, the clues are, are all there in the... Uh, that was a joke, by the way. I don't know if any of you used to listen to Harry. It was a joke, Sam. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, we can tell a lot about it. Um, this passage in Luke, and perhaps even more so the kind of parallels that you see in Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel, have been pretty commonly read over the years as referring to the second coming of Jesus and all kind of events that have not yet unfolded but are about to or will do at some future climactic moment. It's not difficult to see why people have read it like that. It's, um, we'll look at some of the features that have kind of led people to read it that way in due course. Um, and this may be the way that you've read it or been taught about this passage. It may be that you know, we read this and you think immediately... Earthquakes, wars, second coming. Um, and I, I, I think what I'm going to say is that that's not how we should read it. It'd be great to discuss that further with you, if you want, over dinner at your house, whenever's convenient. Um, but in all seriousness, if this does conflict with how like you've generally read this passage, then it'd be great to talk it through and uh, you know, chat, chat it over and work it out. But I, I do think it, this passage itself demands to be read differently. And I think there's an important issue at play, and that's what Jesus said and did. He did it all and said it all in ways that could be understood by people at his time with the aim that his original hearers would understand and know how to respond to him. It's not always the case that I mean, sometimes he spoke cryptically, but his message was there to be understood. It made sense to people. He had an important and urgent message for the people of his time. And if we're to kind of sidestep that and think that every word is just immediately applicable to us, we, we risk dragging his words and his deeds into meanings that fit us rather than understanding him in his own, in his own terms. The, the alternative to that is more harder work, I think, that we, we have to like, work to understand Jesus as his contemporaries would have done. And from there, working out how to mold our lives around him. It takes more work. It's, it's filling out our kind of imaginative understanding of what he's like. And that happens by prayer, by study, by conversations with friends, by uh, 
trying to live it out in practice. So when we read the Gospels, and I think probably this is what we all know, is that we, sh- we shouldn't leap to the question, what does this mean to us, without first trying to wrestle with the question, what does this, or what did this mean to the people of his time? I think actually we're really used to asking those kind of questions when we read a lot of the Bible. Um, but I, f- I get the feeling that sometimes with the Gospel we do rush ahead to the second question. But... This passage is really all about what Jesus says it's about. It's the earth-shattering news that the temple, the central hub of Jewish life, politics and worship, and the the one-time dwelling place of God is to be destroyed. It says it in the... This is an answer. Disciples ask him a specific question, and this is the answer Jesus gives. I think it's worth spending a minute on the temple itself. It was a thousand-year-old institution in Israel. It was a dream even before that. It was something that had been planned by David, only finally realized by Solomon. And at its core, it represents the kind of visible home, the dwelling place of the invisible God. In fact, the theme of where God lives is a is kind of a rich vein through the whole of the Bible. We actually we looked at it a bit one Sunday when we were out. Uh, those of us in the East Side Missional Community it was a question we we looked at a bit there. Um, in Genesis, we have God walking in the garden, living alongside man. But this peace is shattered by mankind's rebellion, and they're thrown out of the land. And then we, later we see how God brought His people back to the promised land. He led them, kind of made manifest by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. Interesting, when we read the story of the dedication of the temple in Second Chronicles or One Chronicles, we see the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire come to uh, rest on the temple as it's dedicated. People there were knowing that God had come to dwell in this place. And then, fast forward a few hundred years, the temple has been destroyed, but Herod the Great, who was the, um, the Herod that wanted to kill all the uh, infants in, when Jesus was born, he'd, he'd rebuilt it even more grandly than before. But the question is, as we look at this picture, where does God live now? In which of these two scenes is God dwelling? Um, Paul gives us the answer. In Colossians 2.9 we read, For in the Messiah all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. It's in Jesus, not this corrupt version of the temple that God was living now. This was the reality of Jesus' kind of mission and life and story. This is where God dwelt. Of course, the progression doesn't end there, and that's kind of where it gets even more exciting, that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down in a new way. Tongues of fire started resting on people. This God who couldn't be contained by human hands ended up making his dwelling in us in a way that Paul got led to write further on to the church in Corinth. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So when Jesus predicts the end of the temple, it makes clear what we'd already guessed actually from his ministry that This temple was redundant. It wasn't any longer the place where God dwelt. It it still functioned in a really important way in its society, but it wasn't the place where we could really say God dwelt here. That that place was Jesus. So what was the nature of this prediction that Jesus makes? Was this a prophecy or was it just a good insight into the consequences of certain patterns of behavior that the Israelites had uh, engaged in? Actually, I'd, I'd probably say... People welcome to correct me, John, and other prophetic types, but I don't think they're two poles apart. You know, engaging in wrong patterns and behaviour and seeing where that leads and then speaking out against that is a prophetic 
thing to do. Um, prophets throughout Israel's history called the nation to account, to remind God's people that God's promise had been to bless them and the nations through them. But were they to forsake him, they would forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And Jesus acts exactly in this way. So anyone that followed Jesus around his few years in Galilee or lately his actions in and around uh, Jerusalem, this prediction of future destruction for the temple wouldn't have been a big surprise to them. In fact, if you saw a couple of weeks earlier in the cleansing of the temple, which Steve talked about, Jesus showed his disgust at the state of things, how things had become in the temple. He went in with a whip and drove people out. This wasn't just like a, a sprucing up, quick, let's get the, out of the old, be all right, get you lot out. You know, I can imagine that the, a few days later, these guys were back in, selling their things, moving the things again, you know, selling on whatever it was they did. But this was a prophetic action. He was saying, this, the way things are is not okay. And he, he demonstrated that in a much way that prophets of old would demonstrate things by, you know, was, was it Jeremiah that lay down in the sun for weeks on it? Ezekiel. And this was a kind of prophetic thing to do, make actions, not just words. Um, he was always in conflict with those who, whose authority meant they were kind of in charge of what life at the temple was like. The Sadducees, as Dave touched on last week, and the chief priests. And he said some pretty stark things about the fate of Jerusalem that Steve Jones mentioned a few weeks ago in his sermon. Um, we don't have to look far for other things about what Jesus said as a prophet. Luke 13, I'll let you have a look in your time, is one of the clearest. It's, they're talking about the, the, the pillar that fell on some people. And Jesus said, yeah, if you don't change, this is what's going to happen to you all. Uh, there's kind of, even there, the, I guess what we read is a nice, friendly, you know, good for Sunday school type parable. The, uh, the man who um, built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock. This is a prophetic action. He's saying there's a storm coming. You know, who are you going to build? How are you going to build? There is a storm coming. And when it comes, it's going to show up who you followed. Have you followed me or have you followed your own way? So as a prophet, as a prophet he called them to repentance, to change their rebellious, revolutionary ways and join him. He understood where their path they, they were on would lead. So given this warning, it's not surprising that his hearers kind of pressed him. So they went, when? What, how will we know? What, what's going to happen? How should we look out for this? Uh, this was their temple. It still mattered to them. Although they would have been Jesus' followers and they became marked out as Jesus' people. Even, even after Jesus' ascension, you can read in Acts, they still met in the temple courts. It was the kind of natural home for them. It mattered to them. This was like historically ingrained in the center of their lives. So no doubt some were kind of opposed to it, opposed to the temple as, as a whole. There were other people in Jesus' day, uh, other communities that spoke out against the temple and predicted that it would fall as well. But others were at home there. This was their uh, kind of center of their lives. Some of them were zealots and brigands for whom the temple was kind of their meeting place. And when Jesus says, you've made this place a den of thieves, that word thieves that he uses is more like, it's a bit more like... Um, Gorillas, rather than not gorilla, not you know, not gorillas. <laughs> the good, yeah, the gorillas, the uh, you know, it's terrorists or rebellion, you know, rebels and revolutionaries. This is not just a common pickpocket in a market. This is someone with intent, someone who's uh, spurred on by greater aims. Um, so it mattered to them. This place mattered to them. And Jesus' answer was interesting. 
He says, be careful. Be, be careful who you follow. A lot's going to happen. I mean, this, he's speaking 40 or so years before the temple was destroyed. Be careful who you follow. He says there's going to be signs. The world's going to get pretty tumultuous. Things are going to change. And you might find yourselves getting blamed. Uh, in times of trouble, it's often the case that scapegoats, scapegoats get found. Um, but in all that persecution, Jesus promises them that he will give them words and wisdom. It almost sounds to me a bit like the Great Commission, actually. He said, in it all, I will give you something. I will be with you. Um, yeah, I guess like as I was just reflecting on some of the prophetic words that came out, I, was, I, I felt like, Lord, yeah, maybe we also know how to speak of him uh, when we're caught in circ- circumstances and situations like that. And he says, patience will see you through, uh, as it will for the rest of this sermon, indeed. So... Um, in, uh, in 1878, um, going back a bit, uh, the football club that became known as Manchester United was formed. They survived bankruptcy on more than one occasion in their early years, and they first won the league title more than 100 years ago in 1908. They became the first English club to win the European Cup in 1968, and in 1999 they became the first club to win the league, the FA Cup, and the Champions League in the same season, which earned their manager a knighthood. I'm not a Manchester United fan, before anyone accuses me of some kind of you know, conversion to the wrong kind of thing. Uh, maybe some of you are. Well, we'll deal with that in due course. But in, um, in 2005... This club got bought out by a, a family, like an empire called the Glazer family. And they used this complicated system of debt and refinance and equity to, to buy the club effectively without really you know, having the funds to do it. So ladening the club with millions and millions and millions of pounds worth of debt. And some fans at the time decided, that's, that's it, that's enough. This is not how football should be done. Uh, they were fed up with the kind of debt-loaded takeover and everything that kind of said about football and uh, such was their kind of disillusionment with the whole thing they went off and started their own club the kind of not very imaginatively titled FC United of Manchester um, kind of quite a similar name to what they started but these guys had aims they had ambitions that this would be different it would be owned by those who supported it not just some money-making machine that kind of lived off all the long-held affections of the people that supported it it would serve its community, not seek to maximise profits. It would bring back something about what football was supposed to be about. So in the years that followed, this club went from a dream that they dreamt up in a curry house in Manchester to something real, a real club. It achieved four successive promotions in its first four years. Um, they still sing at the, at the ground, apparently. I'm not going to sing it. It says, Glazer, wherever you may be, you bought Old Trafford, but you can't buy me. I think that's the kind of... Uh, the reason for this poster. But, you know, their, their, their talk was, you know, was full of ambition and hope and doing something differently. Um, and apparently it even extends to their players. One of the, the managers said, it's a fine balance. We want footballers to be super confident on the pitch, but be humble, have their feet on the ground as people. I'm a totally changed person since 2005. I've learned so much. It's taken time to reach that, and it's attractive to the players. One of the players said, I've been offered more money that would change my life financially. But I believe with all my heart I've had an experience here better than most footballers in the world. 
So what we have here is a movement, a new way of trying to escape the shadow of the old. The old which was enthralled to money, which had forgotten for whom it existed, which served mainly just to enrich a few elitist rulers disconnected from the community it was supposed to serve. I think there are some parallels, or maybe you've spotted them already, um, but we'll draw some of them more out, out more fully in a bit. Um, so what Jesus is telling here uh, about uh, what's going to happen is kind of shocking and heartbreaking. We're just going to read a, a little bit more um, from verse 20. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by its armies, then you will know that her time of desolation has arrived. The people in Judea should run off to the hills. People in Jerusalem should get out as fast as they can. And people in the countryside shouldn't go back into the city. These will be days of severe judgment, which will fulfill all the biblical warnings. Woe betide pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. There's going to be huge distress on the earth and divine anger against this people. The hungry sword will eat them up. They'll be taken off as prisoners to every nation. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the pagans until the times of the pagans are done. So we see here the kind of judgment that normally in the Bible got reserved for the enemies of Israel. It's going to be poured out on Jerusalem, the home of God's people. Um, Jesus' warnings are interesting. He says, when they see the army surrounding Jerusalem, run to the hills. You know, the, just to reiterate, there was nothing complicated about this, the subject of this message. It was, we are talking here about the forthcoming destruction of Jerusalem, not some kind of um, left-behind series uh, edition or post-rapture scenario. This is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. The Jews had already had their run-ins with Rome, and they, you know, the first candidate were people thinking, well, I wonder whose armies might end up surrounding me. It would be Rome in people's minds that they thought about. But why the instruction to flee when I guess to me the most natural thing would be you know, big foreign army at the gates I'm going to probably head out now I think my time here is done but this was their home as much as it was their temple Jerusalem was their capital and there would have been a real kind of ingrained desire to stay and to fight against the enemies that they'd long been hoping for God to overthrow we don't have to go too far back in our, at least, British national conscience to remember kind of the Battle of Britain and kind of the noble act of fighting against foreign oppressors trying to uh, invade. As one of his own disciples, Jesus chose someone we know in the Bible as Simon the Zealot. It says in Luke, 6, 15, Luke chapter 6, verse 15. Um, this is a zealot, someone truly kind of inclined to literally fight for God's kingdom to come, to take up arms, to bear a sword. Um, so Jesus' instruction to get out, it's more than just a call to save their lives. It's a plea with them. It's a plea to let go of some of their national allegiances. It's to loosen the ties to their country because of the new ties that they have to their king. So Jerusalem, the holy city, was going to be trampled, but... Jesus' followers would still be the holy people. The temple, the one-time dwelling place of God, would be cast down until there was no brick left on top of another. But God's people, and this is quoting from Ephesians, will be joined together and rise to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. 
So one temple is being destroyed, another is to be built. Imagine you're a fairly new FC United of Manchester football club fan. That may be a stretch for some of you. Um, But having moved on from supporting Manchester United because you've been convinced the way the club was being run was just appalling. Imagine at the end of the season, your old club, Manchester United, found itself in the cup final. And it's against their oldest enemy, Liverpool. I think even then there'd be a flicker of excitement. You know, the... Wouldn't it be great to get one over the old enemy? Sometimes even when allegiances fade, an enemy remains an enemy. Um, I think Jesus is aware of that. And he said, this is why it's important. He has an important message for his people to get out, not fight against the wrong enemy. One of the key features of Jesus' ministry on earth was to show people that actually the true enemy was not the one with swords and armies just a a few days march away. But the true enemy was the Satan. More to the point, Jesus showed that he was winning. As it says in Luke thirteen sixteen, he says, Should not this, this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Remember to whom you belong, Jesus is saying. Remember who is the real enemy. Don't try and fight against an old enemy and, and be found to be a, not on God's side of the war. Fight with God against the enemies he's already defeating, the devil. I'm going to read a bit more in chapter, uh, verse 25. Maybe, maybe time for a new slide as well. There we go. There will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. On earth, the nations will be in distress and confusion because of the roaring and swelling of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and from imagining all that's going to happen in the world. The powers of heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great majesty. When all these things start to happen, stand up and lift up your heads, because the time has come for you to be redeemed. So it starts to sound a bit different. I don't know if you, to me, I read that and things sound odd. Signs in the moon, distress, the heavens getting shaken, the coming of the Son of Man. Did the topic change? Did I miss a bit out as I have been known to do when reading the Bible? Sometimes you drift off and then you think, how did I get to chapter four already? Um, But no, Jesus is answering the same question. He's still answering the question that they asked, which was about the temple being destroyed. He is talking to them in language that they understand about things that they care about and and are really concerned with. He's not suddenly changed tack and started to look way, way beyond the thing that they were thinking about to the the second coming. So if that's the case, which I think it is, what what is this about the the coming of the Son of Man on a cloud? Um, that is the key question, but firstly a word on the kind of language he's using there. This, this kind of language of saying things about suns and moons being darkened, it's, it's di- designed to help showcase how significant the things that were to come are. Um, that is the destruction of the temple. We, we kind of do similar things, I think, although our vocabulary is a bit limited. But we say things like, it's going to be completely earth-shattering, or even better, it's literally going to be earth-shattering. Uh, when we kind of want to refer to how something is you know, significant or important. Um, 
I think of things that, I mean, like the rise of Islamic State in our day, it's, it's earth-shattering news. The, if you were around a little while ago, the fall of the Berlin Wall or the first moon landing or things like this, you know, these are kind of phenomenal, significant events in our world that required uh, kind of good words to talk about them. And the way that uh, people attach significance to hugely significant events in the past was this kind of what's called apocalyptic language. So when things like, get said things like there will be, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shine anymore, it's, it's ways of speaking that show things that are going to happen are of huge significance. So the son of man on a cloud then, if, if this isn't the second coming, then what is it? Um, that uh, this is I don't know that may be what the picture you have in 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 mind when you read this this passage. Um, what we have here is an example of how the biblical story had fed expectation of God's people. The phrase "the coming of the, uh, the phrase the Son of Man coming on a cloud" is a quote, a uh, direct quote actually from Daniel chapter seven, one of the books in the Old Testament. Um, it, what we, the, the chapter starts with the introduction of these four beasts, which are the kind of, we learn are the kings of various different um, empires. And then we get, I'll read from uh, verse, I think it's verse 8. He um, says, As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one, that's God, took his throne. His clothing was as white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, and as I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. We have this scene of a law court. It says you know, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. There's a decision to be made in the heavens. And so we have these various beasts representing. I mean, by representing, I mean, no one really thought that they were real beasts. Everyone reading this at the time understood this was a way of speaking about uh, real nations and real empires. Uh, most probably Rome, and at least Rome was one of them. So they have these various pieces representing these different nations. And they come before God, the judge of all. And in this heavenly court sort of scenario, we look to see who's going to get the favored yes from God's judgment. Who's going to be vindicated? Who's going to be declared to be in the right? The answer is, it's Israel, God's people. Just as all the nation, other nations get represented by beasts, we have Israel represented by a son of man or a human um, the beasts are destroyed and disarmed and the man is rewarded and vindicated 
So in, in Jesus' time, this passage was a source and the foundation for great hope and expectation. This was, this was what they held on to when they, they saw that the world was not as it should be. They needed God's deliverance. Oppressive nations ruled over them. Where was God? When was God going to deliver that kind of vindication where the Son of Man, Israel's representative, gets given all kingdom, all dominion and deliverance? This wasn't just a, a giving some vague hope. It was a powerful motivator. Many lined up to fight those who they believed to be God's enemies that were depicted in this scene. And they did so in the knowledge that they were fighting on God's side. They knew what judgment was going to be. And they knew that if they were fighting God's enemies, they were fighting on the right side of God's judgment. They were speeding the kingdom of God into being, so they thought. And these were the brigands, the zealots, and the revolutionaries of the temple, looking to see God's enemies overthrown. So what the coming of the clouds doesn't mean, it's it's not a downward descent to earth from God, like you may think of this passage in in the passage from Daniel. It's exactly the opposite. The coming is to God, uh, to the Ancient of Days. Um, This passage fits actually perfectly and and purposefully with the rest of what we've read so far, which we've seen is all about the destruction of the temple. What Jesus has done is to use this quotation in a kind of a pretty breathtaking way he's saying when he says that see the son of man coming on a cloud he's saying judgment's here this will be the time when you know judgment is being passed and god has found in our favor the court has passed its verdict and we are vindicated god's people are lifted up and his enemies are defeated yet he's saying this just as the enemies of israel are trampling them and their temple underfoot There's a a shift somewhere. This can only make sense on the basis that we saw earlier, that the old temple is already redundant. Jesus himself has upstaged and outdone it. More than that, Jesus has been actively redefining who the people of God are, who it is that are on God's side in this. In the series so far in Luke, we've looked at the Beatitudes, we've looked at the calling of the 12 disciples, the stories about his mothers and brothers who came to see him, and he said, oh, I'll tell you who my mother and brothers are. They're the ones who do God's word. Uh, We saw him eating with sinners. We saw Jesus healing lepers. We saw the welcome home of the prodigal son and the lost coin being found. Actually, those two, uh, those last two are still yet to come. But I do prophesy that they will come soon before this series has passed away. Um, So in all of these actions and instructions and stories... Jesus was turning the tables on who could call themselves blessed. Like in the Beatitudes, he says, blessed to the poor. Everyone thought the rich would be blessed. He was redefining when he called his 12 disciples, who are the real Israel? Who is the true people of God? And so we have in this passage the rescue and deliverance of God's people. Their redemption, as Luke puts it in verse 28. And the judgment on their enemies, it just didn't quite appear as they thought it would. So why did it matter to Jesus? Why was the temple's downfall part of this kind of necessary climax to the story? Uh, To illustrate, indulge me in one last return to the um, story of FC United. Um, Imagine that you were, the the founders of FC United were completely right. 
somehow the model of business that their old club, Manchester United, was using was so corrupt, so out of kilter with everything that it was supposed to be, that finally, 40 years after they founded FC United, Manchester United was declared bankrupt and ceased to exist. I hear an amen. <laughs> no. Um, but at the same time, they got established as one of the leading clubs of the time, presumably playing under different governance structures, no more set blatter in charge of FIFA, that everything kind of became completely different from how it was. Wouldn't this be the vindication of everything they believed in, everything they thought they were founding when they uh, started this new club? It would prove them right the whole time. This would be earth-shattering news in a kind of tumultuous time. If Jesus had already made the temple redundant by who he was, the dwelling place of God and everything he did and said. What would it say to his followers of the time if, and to those who doubted him and his prophetic warnings that if this temple continued and served as a focus uh, for Israel's worship while his followers remained some kind of small, insignificant bunch languishing in the conference north of messianic movements? If, if this table hadn't been turned, Jesus wouldn't, Jesus wouldn't have been shown uh, to be the world's true king. So for us, what, what now? If, if, this isn't, um, if this isn't about the expectation of the second coming, then, then what is it and what should we do? Um, we should keep on feeding ourselves with the biblical story, just like Jesus' contemporaries did. On Daniel chapter 7 in particular, they did. We've, we've had the decisive moment in the narrative. We've had uh, Jesus' action and, and death and resurrection, which changed everything. But there's a final putting of things right yet that's still to come, that's still to look forward to. There is the return of Jesus to look forward to as well. But this passage is not about that. To feed our hope and understanding of where the story's going, we shouldn't, I I put to you, we shouldn't look to this passage and start to scan the news for for earthquakes and start rumours of wars, but we should look at Romans chapter 8, we should look at 1 Corinthians 15, we should look at Revelation 21 and 22 and so, and so much more as well that all of creation crying out in anguish will be renewed. Justice will come for the oppressed and the oppressors will get their justice too. The death will be defeated and our bodies will be transformed. The heavens and earth will be renewed. And in that, whatever measure or amount we think we know about God dwelling with us, and he really is dwelling with us, but we will finally know the full measure of what it means to have God living with us. This and much more are what we've got to look forward to. This is a story we should feed ourselves on, crying out for its rightful ending. And we should join in, just like those brigands and zealots and revolutionaries did as well, to work, not fight with arms, but to work for justice, for the renewal of creation, for the presence of God being with his people. We are going to be declared to be on God's side and that we are speeding the fullness of his already here kingdom when we start joining in with these things. Um, I'm going to read the last little bit of the, the, the passage from verse 34. He says, So watch out for yourselves, said Jesus, that your hearts may not grow heavy with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. So the the day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. It will come, you see, on everyone who lives on the face of the earth. 
Keep awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will happen and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus was teaching in the temple by day, but at night he went out and stayed in the place called the Mount of Olives. And from early morning, all the people flocked to him in the temple to hear him. So what about the 40 years or so when it seems like expectations are not being met? Um, What about the glorious future when it seems that the old ways might actually be the best? Uh, It wouldn't hurt, would it, just to pop back to see Manchester United? They've got the beautiful stadium, such great players. Um, I think that Jesus understood what his followers would go through in that time. He already described the persecution they they would face. And now he describes what their responses to that might be. To give in. To end up with a heavy and weary heart. To stumble back into the old ways. Looking for God in places that he'd already left. I guess we too live live in the reality of unmet expectations. I think it's really powerful how we prayed earlier. Where we gave voice to the faithfulness of God in the midst of things that have not yet been resolved. It's wonderful to look forward to a renewed creation, but what about the damage being done to ours right now? It's great that one day my body will be made new, but what about the healing that I need right now, today? Um, Future justice is great, but what about those being oppressed and persecuted today? It's great news about God being truly with us in the future, but sometimes at the moment he seems distant. So we live, live, I guess, all of us live with these tensions at times. Um, Probably some of you would have liked to have prayed out more, but there isn't time or there wasn't time. But this is something we all kind of deal with day to day. Uh, We live with these tensions. Sometimes they're kind of heart-wrenchingly real. Sometimes they seem almost resolved as we kind of experience healing and see justice being worked out and no kind of closeness with God um, in it all though as uh, Sue brought to us his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives um, Jesus encouraged his followers in three ways and I think we need some of those same encouragements he said firstly recognize there's a temptation that your hearts will get weary in knowing, in knowing that tendency, it's an encouragement to be aware of it and reach out for help when you need it. Secondly, is to pray, he says. To pray for strength to stand when expectations are not met and the tension of not seeing all the things of God worked out and the promises of God not yet being fulfilled. And thirdly, from early, he said he's going to give us a mouth and wisdom. He's going to be with us in times that we need him. So our, our future is secure, and the story points to a, something glorious. Oh, I forgot to change slide. There's probably another one. I don't know what it is. There isn't in the waiting. There you go. Um, our, our future is secure. There is uh, a story that is longing for its fulfillment, where we will one day see the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. We will one day see all of these things. And it's a story that we kind of need to feed ourselves and we need to remind ourselves. We need to look at both the reality of our day-to-day situation and the reality of God's promises and stand in that tension. But God's calling us to join in. Uh, 
Join in with justice, like Edge are doing so well. Know that God is truly dwelling in us, but there's more to come. And in the face of those unmet expectations, resist, uh, resist the temptation to fall back into old ways, to things that are easy and comfortable, for allegiances which don't, won't stand the test of time. There is a truth about God that we need to proclaim in the midst of these storms and make expectations. He's calling us to stand and to pray in these tensions. I think is the kind of, that's what this passage I think is about. I hope that's um, kind of landed with you. I, I, I said at the beginning, but I just want to reiterate now, if there are, if you want to talk about those kind of things, uh, the differences in how that passage might have been read, it'd be really great to, to talk um, but um, I think over to Alan, I don't know how you want to uh, respond to.